HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop, a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. This past April, in the early days of quarantine, I got to interview Soleil Ho. Soleil made headlines when she was hired as the new restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle in the spring of 2019. She was replacing Michael Bauer, who had been in the role for 32 years. Before the Chronicle, Soleil co-hosted the Racist Sandwich podcast, which was nominated for a James Beard Award last year. She's also worked in many, many restaurants. Soleil is just brilliant and fantastic. And it was such a joy to speak with her. Here's our conversation. My name is Soleil Ho. I am a restaurant critic that works for the San Francisco Chronicle, a newspaper out of San Francisco. And 
Let's see what else. I don't really do anything else anymore. <laughs> That's basically my life. I've worked in restaurants for close to a decade. Um, and my work is very much, I think, owed to that, that experience. And um, yeah, I really, I really want to use restaurant reviews as a site of exploration um, when it comes to these bigger issues, not just about food, but about like what we conceive of as um, our values, our aspirations, and all of that reflected through food. And were you always write? Like, did you work in restaurants and then start writing? Did you start writing and then think like, oh, I should, I should take a restaurant job? Or how did how did that happen for you? Throughout college, I worked at a restaurant, um, the one like fancy ish restaurant in my very small college town in Iowa, <laughs> and that was where I learned about farm to table. It's where I learned about you know really basic restaurant life stuff, like how to pour like a uh, whiskey on the rocks. How do you talk to customers? What do customers like want? How do you open a bottle of wine next to a table? Like that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'd always been doing everything side by side. And so when I graduated from college in 20, no, 2009, the recession had really, really, you know, erased very much opportunity for people with like bachelor's degrees. So I went into the restaurant industry because I knew that that was where my experience was. And so that was what propelled me for the next couple of years. And at the same time, I interned for a local food publication in Minneapolis where I was living, just doing random stuff for free. And that was how I got in. Nice. Um, And where I kind of started to become familiar with your work is with Racist Sandwich. And I wonder about kind of how you and and Zahir John Muhammad decided to start the show or, or what propelled you of like, we want to make a food podcast and this is the kind of food podcast that we, we want to make. These are the issues that we feel like we want to be talking about. Sure. Yeah. Um, at the time it was, as I mentioned before, I was an avid reader of food writing and food publications and Zahir also really enjoys those. And we were both really frustrated by the lack of representation of people of color in particular in those publications and just in that world. And if there was representation, it was very tokenizing. You know what I mean? Like the, um, inevitable, collection of like black food stories in February, for instance, Mm. or special content for Chinese New Year. And that's kind of it. And like maybe a couple token references to India during like Diwali, if anything. Right. (laughs) So we, we were really interested in like just proving that you could have a media outlet that focused on the stories of people who were marginalized along racial, ethnic, sexual lines all the time, that we could have at least close to 100% coverage and not run out of stories. <laughs> um, so that was what we did. And at the time, it felt very radical, which is sad. And what I found interesting, too, is like after the Trump presidency and after all of the you know, the immigration stuff, all the rhetoric about immigration and the Muslim ban and like all of this stuff, the food publications that we followed all made these like statements of solidarity with immigrants and immigrants make America great and immigrants make America delicious and all this stuff. And we're just like, no, that's not the point. That's not the point of immigration or people being allowed to live because they're human. 
Right. So, it's you know, like, there's a there's a way to go. What we eat without immigrants is not the central question. Right. And like first of all, you're all colonizers, so like it's <laughs> you're going to take what it, whatever you want anyway. Like that's just how it works. So yeah, we've seen attempts at progressivism and like truly, you know, it's you drag the genre you love forward kicking and screaming and you do it because you love it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you have a new job, a newish job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're like, I guess coming up on your over a year now. Um, yeah. How did, how did that job offer come about? And, and maybe how did you feel when you got that job? So when I'd heard that the restaurant critic for the Chronicle was retiring after 32 years, I was really excited because, you know, then the Chronicle announced that they'd be looking for a new person. And right. I thought, oh, I wonder who's going to get the job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was so excited and posting it everywhere. And, you know, a lot of people were really hopeful that it was going to be someone really new and different and, you know, a, a chance. And I think we all kind of in the food media, all the people of color talk to each other, you know, and um, we were all hoping that it would be one of us. And I had not thought to apply for that job because I thought, you know, that wasn't quite what I was meant to do. I wasn't sure. Mm. Um, you know, you have an idea of what a restaurant critic is, and that just didn't seem like that was who I was. But then all of these stories came out from like the Washington Post and other outlets that were speculating as to who would be able to get the job. And so many people like were naming me and I was like, what, <laughs> why I had, didn't even apply. And so I thought, okay, I will. I just drew my name in the hat. And then the next day I got a call and I was like, oh, weird. <laughs> Whoa. So there was a long process of interviews and other, you know, the things that you do when you're applying for a job. And when I actually got it, I was so amazed and I thought, what, <laughs> what universe is this? <laughs> and, you know, it's hard because you're not supposed to tell anybody until they make the official announcement, but I like told like five people. <laughs> Sworn to secrecy. <laughs> I can't keep a secret. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. If you ask me anything three times, I will tell you. And so um, when I got the job and it was announced, everyone was so happy and excited. And I think it was really easy to imagine if I were on the other end of this, how excited I would have been if any of my colleagues had gotten the job too. So it was really, it was a really great moment, I think. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and you kind of mentioned like, oh, there's this idea of what a restaurant critic is. And especially at the Chronicle, you know, Michael Bauer had been there for over 30 years. And so there was very much an idea of what like the San Francisco Chronicle restaurant critic role was. And I wonder how did you decide that you wanted to approach the role of being a restaurant critic? Yeah. So um, I kind of had to make it all up on my own, you know, and I was inspired because, because the models that are out there are pretty straight not like straight sexually, but more just <laughs> like um, – the ones who determined the genre were not quite the people that I wanted to emulate. I respect them a lot, but that's just not the kind of writing that I do, you know? So I had to figure it out and figure out how to engage 
readers who wanted to read about restaurants with the kinds of stuff that I was interested in because I couldn't just, you know, write a straight review. Although sometimes I do, and that's a fun diversion for me. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that I relied a lot on not only on food writing and restaurant writing, but arts criticism, for instance, film criticism, games criticism, like all of these fields of criticism are going through and have gone through there's these really interesting like existential moments where they're deciding is this something that is worth talking about when it comes to bringing in politics or sociology or you know real people issues or do we just talk about art for art's sake you know each of these respective genres have gone through this and i think food is just beginning to go through this and i'm really excited to be on the cusp of that One of the things that struck me is that you came in and were really open about that. Like one of the first pieces I read when you started at the Chronicle was, I'm forgetting the title, but it was something along the lines of like, these are words that that I will not use as a food (laughs) critic. You like, you got rid of the star rating system and talked about like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food and, and really went beyond that too. And I wonder, will you just talk a little bit about that piece and and kind of that piece as as your introduction to you know hello san francisco here i am (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i think deep down i want to be liked by everyone and i know that that's impossible intellectually Mm -hmm. and so this collection of stories because i put out four essays like short ones in addition to five restaurant reviews on my first official kind of day writing for the chronicle and I wanted to be honest about what I was bringing to the table because if you're not going to like me, I'd rather you not like me based on what I admit to be true about myself and the way Mm -hmm. I do things. So I just laid it all out there. I wanted to be honest about where I was coming from because I think we have this assumption in criticism that objectivity is the most important aspect of our jobs, but I think it's based on this assumption that objectivity is even possible. And I don't think it is. I don't think you ever can truly put aside your feelings about something just because you are a human that lives in society. You're not like outside of society just because you're a critic. So it's more honest. And also it enables more people to view your work objectively. If you are honest about your subjectivity, because you know, for so long, we've allowed objectivity to be the realm of white men, often straight white men, mm. who come from a certain economic class. And anyone who existed or had a perspective outside of that was, you know, writing or speaking from a biased perspective or from a uh, alternative perspective. But I think that we all are speaking from alternative perspectives because if we assume that there is a whatever the opposite of alternative is, like the the hegemonic perspective, and you look at history, the hegemonic perspective has often been one kind right. of like, you know, heteropatriarchal capitalist white supremacist perspective. And, you know, I think that being honest about where I'm coming from is exposing the lie of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I was thinking through, like, when it was announced and all of your friends that you told in secret could could stop holding the secret. Um, There was a lot of buzz. And from what I was reading, like a lot of that buzz focused on your identities specifically, almost kind of in some of the articles that I read or tweets that I read, it was almost as if that was like all people needed 
to know, to know what kind of critic you would be of like, the new SF Chronicle food critic is a queer woman of color. And I just remember reading something and being like, huh, there's actually not a ton of mention about Soleil's like work and politics (laughs) (laughs) in this article. It's just kind of like, ta-da, look what the Chronicle did. And so when you talk about this idea of like, yeah, anyone without a white straight male of class privilege identity is automatically assumed to be writing from bias or from experience and like somehow, you know, white straight men are objective is (laughs) wild to me. Um, But I also, I wonder in what ways you do feel yourself bringing your identities to your role or not. And like, how do you think about that? (laughs) Yeah. um, I, I did notice the same thing about my politics or even just like the work that I do not being as part of the story. And I think that is, the double-edged sword to that sort of celebration where yes, it's historic and it's really interesting in that way, but it ends up being sort of a token gesture if you don't actually engage with the work, you know, right? because I could easily be a Margaret Thatcher type of feminist, right? (laughs) (laughs) She was a woman, but does that necessarily mean that the things she did were good for women? You know, that's a question. And I think holding people accountable who we celebrate for their identities should be a part of, of any sort of progressive politics, but you know, it's not necessarily apparently. So, well, you know what? I totally forgot your question because I was just talking about Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) 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 Would you mind rephrasing the question? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it was a long, it was a very long winded question (laughs) anyway. So that is probably my bad, but I was thinking about, um, Both like, A, obviously identity is not going to be the only thing that informs your work as a restaurant critic. And I guess my question is like, what does inform your work as a critic? And where do you feel your identities showing up as a food critic? And and what is that like for you? Sure. Okay. I think for me, the most potent way that I can kind of exercise this in ways that are meaningful is just the act of centering. You know, who am I centering in this writing? What perspective is normal or considered normal when I'm writing this sentence or this phrase or this comparison? And who am I speaking to? And I think for so long, you know, you're asked, especially in newspaper writing, right? You're asked to write to the subscriber. You're asked to write to the mass audience. But when you start asking questions of like, who does this person look like? What do they... um, eat for breakfast? Where do they get their coffee? Oh, how old are they? You know, um, when's the last time they've turned on the TV or listened to the radio? All of this stuff matters. Um, do they know what an omelet is? Do they know what a El Pastor taco is? Right. And for me, the fun and interesting part has been stretching a little bit in different directions, that definition of who the reader is. So for instance, if I am going to write about a particular pastry, do I compare it to something French, something American, something Cantonese, something Korean? Um, when I'm talking about textures, what is the you know, analog that I can bring in that would be evocative for the most people? Or at least, can I use other language to massage this so that everyone can understand, even if they don't know one or two words in this phrase. 
that sort of thing, I think is the most subtle way that I do it. But also I think people pick up on it. Obviously it's like, you can't not. (laughs) The other way I think is um, really, it's just not taking for granted that people, um, that people know certain things, you know? So there's different ways that you can manage that. You can have a parenthetical behind a word. You can italicize a word. Um, you can describe it in an explanatory sort of comma phrase. And so stepping back and thinking about which words am I choosing to explain versus not, and just like letting people understand like, oh yeah, they know what lasagna is. You know, they know what mayonnaise is. Like (laughs) playing with that and playing with assumptions is really, is really fun. Yeah. And also, I think when you said earlier something around the lines of like the ones who determine the genre made me think about audience, like who are people writing for? And and I see you do things like, you know, even just small things like note in a review, um, like this restaurant has a gender neutral bathroom tells me that you are like thinking about audience in a broader way um, and in a more intentional way, if I'm hearing you know, if I'm reading that correctly. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that the that's one way. But, you know, like, that's how hierarchies and dynamics are cemented, right? Through these subtle ways, through these really, really small gestures that we all make unconsciously. And so when you start making them consciously, that's how you start to at least kind of wiggle your way towards change. There are bigger ways to do it, um, <laughs> but you got to do both. Yeah. I'm wondering just on a practical level, what draws you to a restaurant? Like how do you, the Bay Area has so many places to eat. And so I'm wondering how you make decisions about where to go. (laughs) Well, it's pretty arcane and, um, you know, a very important secret of the job. But Generally speaking, I try to space things out and I, um, you know, if I, I don't, for my own mental health, right? Like I don't want to go to two tasting menu dinners in a row or only eat Italian food for a whole week unless that's like a particular story that I'm doing. So I try to spread things out geographically and as far as cuisine goes, price range, because I know that'll speak to the most readers. Definitely. Do you, so you're coming up on... A year. You're coming up on, I guess, the anniversary of your first review, and you've written a lot in the last year. I wonder what stands out to you. Like, what are, yeah, what stands out? It doesn't have to be highlights, but what stands <laughs> out from the year? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So, my first reviews came out in March, or the first week of March at some point. And um, it's been a wild year. <laughs> a lot has happened. Uh, inside food writing and outside. But I think that the most exciting review that I put out was the one of this restaurant called Le Colonial in San Francisco, where I got to talk about just colonial imagery and aesthetics and just how all of these things together kind of manifest an image of who the perceived audience is supposed to be of a place. So I I got to like flex my aesthetic theory muscles for that review. And I was really excited about it. And I got to talk to Viet Thanh Nguyen, who is a wonderful speaker and just thinker. And so I was really, really, really um, honored. Mm. I was really honored to bring him in to this, this review. 
Like I never thought I'd be hobnobbing with like a Pulitzer Prize winner, you know, like right. <laughs> it's a lot. It's it's too much. Any things that you wish had gone really differently in the last year? At the Chronicle, you don't need to get so personal, but at the Chronicle. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I think the Chronicle has been such a great supporter of my work. And despite how loopy I am and how <laughs> how I'm always late on my deadlines and everything, they're, they're very forgiving. They're very good to me. And I think the maybe the one thing I wish for is just, you know, I think – I think it would be great if they could just turn off the comments. <laughs> I would love that if they could just turn off the comments. They're terrible. Nobody reads the comments. It's the worst. Um, for me, that's like always the the bane of my existence. If I accidentally scroll down, I'm just like, oh no. And I like quickly have to like escape the the pit of despair that the comment sections are. <laughs> that's that's the big thing. Ugh. When you when you're writing for a huge audience, you know, like many newspaper writers do, you get a lot of stuff, you know, there's a lot of chaff to the feedback that you get from just the masses. <laughs> yeah. So is your approach to to that just kind of like, I'm not going to read this? Like, how do you, how do you handle the feedback that you're getting both in the comment section and outside of the comment section, um, you know, it can be really, it can be really easy to let it rule your life and just take over. So I try super hard to maintain boundaries and not read anything unless I'm emotionally ready to devote my attention to it. Otherwise, if you're just peppering it throughout your day, like when you get in bed or when you're on the toilet or like cooking or whatever (laughs) on your phone, um, it just becomes an everyday kind of white noise in mm. your psyche that, and it's not like a positive white noise. It's an awful one. And it just starts to take over the role of like that mean voice in your head. And then it just like lives there forever. And so maintaining that boundary is really important just maintaining your mental health. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll hear Soleil's thoughts about what the restaurant industry needs in this time of crisis. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop. Bisop is a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. Berry Bisop honors and preserves the traditional recipe while adding their own twist. Berry Bisop teas are fused with organic fruit. They're all natural, caffeine-free, ethically sourced, and free from artificial coloring or any other chemicals. As for taste, they're chilled and refreshing with a hint of both sweetness and tartness. Drink them alone or mix them with seltzer or cocktails. Learn more at berrybisop.com. That's berry, B-I-S-S-A-P dot com. Welcome back to Queer the Table. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I interviewed Soleil in early April. San Francisco's shelter-in-place order, which required that all restaurants shut down except for takeout operations, had been issued three weeks before we spoke. Since Soleil is someone who loves restaurants, who's worked in them, and now makes her living writing about them, I wanted to know what she was thinking and feeling. Uh, It's April 9th, and restaurants are really in it right now and hurting. And I I wonder how you're feeling and and what you're thinking about. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I just put out (laughs) – this is funny. I just put out an op-ed in our paper about all of this stuff 
about restaurants and the precarity of their situation and the situation of their workers, many of whom are many of whom are undocumented. So I I found myself kind of trapped when I was writing because I realized to fulfill journalistic ethics boundaries, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. advocate for political action. That's like not part of the job. And it would violate objectivity, you know, all those sorts of things and and expose you as a biased human. But of course, like as we have talked about, um, everyone has a bias. It's like old school journalistic stuff that maintains that you don't. Um, and it's a matter of personal will to separate your bias from your actual writing, and which is fine. People do that, and it's great. So um, that left me, when all of this hit the industry, with recommending that people take individual actions. Like, that was what was left to me, you know? Right. Um, gift cards, order takeout, um, support restaurants that you love, uh, donate to GoFundMes, that sort of stuff. But like, that's not going to enact substantive change for the industry. That's not going to save us the next time. And there's going to be a next time that this happens. So I, with the support of my editors, I lobbied to write an op-ed for our paper about what restaurants and restaurant workers need to survive. So we talk about, um, overhauling the aid programs like the stimulus, which favors, you know, um, bigger (laughs) businesses and businesses that are, um, of a certain type. It excludes restaurant and business owners who have been incarcerated from participating. It doesn't grant undocumented workers anything. Um, it's just completely unrealistic. And I talk about how one way to help save restaurant workers and restaurant tours in general from all of this financial like horror that is coming down the pipe is to actually seriously enact Medicare for all things like that. Um, <laughs> cause a lot of these places are staying open because they don't want their workers to lose healthcare during this extreme public health crisis. But right. if they didn't have to worry about that, then people could stay the fuck home. <laughs> so, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> I'm really glad I got to write it. When I recorded this interview, I was worried that by the time the season of queer the table launched and the episode actually aired, the coronavirus would be old news. I can't believe how wrong I was. I can't believe it's July. I can't believe we're here. I can't believe how incredibly relevant rereading Soleil's piece the other day felt. Cases are surging across California and around the country. Congress still hasn't come up with a plan for a new relief package, even though the CARES Act and the nationwide moratorium on evictions are set to expire in just a couple of days. It feels like we're right back where we started, and there is so much work to do. I've linked the article and a few more recent pieces by Soleil in the show notes. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. The logo was designed by Natalie Uduella, and the theme song is by Denali Gillespie. You can find and reach out to us on Instagram at Queer the Table. Queer the Table is powered by Simplecast, and we're a part of Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations that make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.